You're listening to Feminist Killjoys PhD and our feminism, pop culture, and politics as discussed by two professional Killjoys. I'm Rachel. And I'm Melody. And today we'll be discussing prison abolition. Hi, Melody. Hi, Rachel. How are you? I'm okay. I'm still in Minneapolis, but I'm in my home and you're in your home. So anyway, how are you? How's your past couple weeks been? Everything's been... uh, I saw you a couple times. We see each other in person now. It's like... It's true. What is that? It still seems kind of surreal, but... um, No, I'm doing doing great. Um, I'm really... It's odd. So as a reminder to everybody, we're doing a show every other week now instead of every week. Um, And that's been good. Um, This semester... I've been really focusing on trying to like stay organized and be very intentional with my work time. And I think having some space to like prepare for the podcast and not feel so rushed all the time, like it's just making me feel more confident and able in producing this kind of stuff. So that's been really great. Uh, We both got SUVs. We did. We did. Fuck Um, the planet. Yeah, it was it was weird. So can I just jump in with my little defense of getting a used oh my god please this is a mutual check-in at this point go ahead yeah so my defense of getting a used suv is first of all so i sold my car in massachusetts that um brought me a lot of pain and anguish i had driving in massachusetts as i talked about probably many times was really difficult and so just i had bad associations with that car and there was a friend a friend of mine that needed a car so he bought it um at i think a reasonable fare for both of us sort of sort of price um I was going to see how long I could get away with sharing a car with my partner um, while I was here. But honestly, like, I fucking hate this about the nature of, like, late-stage capitalism. But, um, well, there's more to it than that. I was just sort of being obnoxious. But anyway, we just needed two cars, unfortunately. And so, uh, as we discuss Melody, like, buying a car, like, the car shopping process is just fucking terrible. Like, especially for people who aren't excited about cars. (laughs) Like, just, it's not fun. And I definitely needed a used one because I certainly can't afford a new one. And anyway, I found this Latino-owned local tiny little car dealership. Like, they have probably, like, between 10 and 15 max at a time. And when I was borrowing my partner's car, he has a small SUV. And I was like, wow, I feel so much fucking safer and driving anxiety is, you know, rooted in not feeling safe, um, my, my particular driving anxiety. So I was like, uh, like kind of want a car where I'm like higher up. I just feel, I just feel better. And so we found a really fucking reasonable priced SUV that was under a hundred thousand miles by people that like, it was like a nice family and we just felt really good and trusted them. And it was the first time I went out to a lot and I was like, wow, if I can do this now, I'm just not going to not going to look back. So so that's my story and slight defense of it. How about you? I have a very similar story. I got my car for free, which I very much appreciate. Thank you. Shout out to Carol Stabile for the car. But over the years, it's a very small car and I'm a very tall person and it's very cramped. I have two nephews now that are are in car seats. I like to bike random places. And so I just wanted a bigger car and mostly for my body because my my other yoga friend, uh, Rebecca... And I just mentioned yoga because y'all are always in tune with your body and stuff. She's like, the car is kind of wrecking your body. Like, you can get a different car. And I'm like, I can? Oh. And then so my our shared mechanic, Clausens, shout out to Clausens. You don't even have to pay me for this advertisement. They're like amazing mechanics. They're so sweet. They never make me feel stupid as a woman. They're just like 
amazing people. They also sell used cars on the side sometimes. And one of the guys was like, didn't you want a bigger car? I was like, yeah. And he's like, I'm selling that Saturn over there for $3,500, like $3,200 or something. I was like, what? And it like looks like a brand new car. And so, but similar with you, Rachel, I was like, done. Like, right. if this is all it's going to take to get a different car, that's, I have the money saved in a CD. I don't have to talk to anybody. I just have to talk to my mechanic who I adore. And I get a new car that's bigger that I can put nephews in and a bike. I'm done. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not. Totally. And, totally. Then, and then as I was driving around, I was like, this thing is really big. Like, I bought a really big car. Yeah. The saving grace is it's a Saturn. You know, like, yeah, uh, I don't yeah. know. Uh, I bought an SUV. But the the other thing about it, though, that I was talking with my partner is that I'm actually going to be able to bike more. And I'll explain why. I came up or I we're having a bike week at school next week. And we we're talking about park and ride where instead of getting on the bus, we get on our bike. And so I can throw my bike in the back of my car now really easily and then just like drive halfway to school and then bike the rest. Totally. At a park and ride where like I would never do that with my car because it's my smaller car because it's just like a racket trying to get it in the back of my trunk where it half hangs out. So the fact that I can just throw a bike in like in two seconds is going to actually I'm going to bike to school tomorrow. Like I'm going to go halfway and then bike the rest. So that's perfect. That's so great. Yeah. So I feel like that's a good for those of us who care about the our car usage. Um, it's making me feel a lot better. But as you, as with you, I get, I hate driving. I think yeah. I'm going to hit a pedestrian and bicyclist every second yeah. that I'm driving. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm going to hit a kid that runs, you know, I just always think that. So being able to be higher up too, I feel great because now totally. that cars are all so giant, driving in a small car, it's like everything is a blind spot. Totally. Totally. That's so true. Yeah. Yeah, I feel the same way. Anyway, on to things that are more exciting. We were also both at weddings in the past week. Talk about, you want to talk about the wedding you were at? So my former student, Atticus, got married this weekend to his boyfriend. That's sweet enough. Except when I met him as a student back in 2009, I was at the U as a graduate student and he was having some issues. All of a sudden he went from very cheery to not very cheery. Turns out he had come out to his parents and his wrestling team. None of them, or his family, I should say, his family and his wrestling team, nobody took it well. The wrestling team was especially atrocious. And so basically we worked together to make sure that he would get a high enough grade to get the heck out of the the University of Minnesota somewhere else so he can get away from this horror show. And so because we went through that situation together, I check up on him every once in a while. I'll Google him just to see how he's doing. Doing. Sometimes I'll shoot him an email and we'll just say hi back and forth. And the last time I Googled him was, a, you know, a couple months ago now. And I found his wedding announcement online. And I was like, so ecstatic. I'm sure I texted you. I I was just like, yeah. oh my God, oh my God, Atticus is getting married. Mm-hmm. And so I emailed him. We were being very lovey-dovey back and forth. And then I basically invited myself to the wedding. And it was awesome. I was known as the professor. Oh, you're the professor that's here. I heard about you. Blah, blah, blah. Aww. Yeah, it was really cute. <laughs> uh, it was really cute. Uh, it was nice to know that we have mutual. Usually, like, when I'm looking out for students, it's a very one-way street, which is totally fine. You know? But it's just nice. Right. Like, we have a mutual admiration for each other. And we care about yeah. each other. And it's also nice, oftentimes, as a teacher, students go through trials in your experience when you're around and then you don't yeah. know what happens to them and it's totally the full circleness of that experience was what was really important for me to be like okay I watched him go through that trauma now he married the man that he met at the University of Minnesota I was there to witness both things right and now he you know he is he is okay 
And that's important because we worry a lot about our students. And it was just nice to see that come full circle in a very positive way. Totally. I just love that story so much. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. I could really drag it. I should do a illustrated thing. I should do something with that. Yeah, for sure. We'll brainstorm about that later. What was your wedding like? Were you at a gay wedding too? It was a gay wedding. Gay uh, wedding. Yeah. E.G. Nelson, sort of local Minneapolis celebrity a bit in, in the bike bike world a little bit and the queer world married her partner Jay and they had a really actually they got married a long time ago this was just sort of a party and it was really fun and it was especially special because a lot of my sort of queer family from Minneapolis was in town to celebrate it and you know a lot of a lot of us are sort of spread out all over so it was a nice little reunion and it was good so that was good and also in terms of my check-in and speaking of your wedding and how smoking hot you and Dakota look, you got to wear what you wore to the wedding another time in the past two weeks. I did because I look so good. I was like, you I, got, really I gotta wear this again. Totally. And you wore it for a photo shoot that we did. So we're gonna have some new pics. Um, <laughs> shout out to Jason. Jason. We've been- Jason's pretty great. We mentioned Jason on the air before. Jason did photos of, well, Jason in general does photos of sex workers for free and sort of an act of solidarity in terms of, you know, all the shit that sex workers have to deal with. So when we had Zaya Kendall on the show, I'm I'm like, I got connected with her through him because he had done a free set of photos for her. And so he's just a good ally, good feminist dude. And he took some really cool pictures and it felt like very, mod- like we felt like he talks to people like he would talk to models, you know, so he, he was like, look here, look there, look there, turn, turn. And it felt very like, it felt fun. So thanks, Jason. Yeah, if you need a photographer, he was really awesome to work with. I, I totally. haven't had a ton of experience with photographers, but he was just super chill. Very nice, very um, encouraging, mm-hmm. a lovely person, great politics. Yeah. I barely talked to him, but you know how you can just get the vibe with people? I'm a vibe person. Yeah. It's like his vibe was very chill. So if anybody in the Midwest area needs a photographer. Or not just Midwest, because he spends half his time in New Orleans. Oh, that's and so, and right. he, he travels... He travels everywhere, actually. So that's right. Yep, we'll link we'll link him in the show notes. Cool. Any other check-ins you want to report back on? I just have one quick astrology update. Great. Sometimes <laughs> we talk about our signs. So I'm a Scorpio moon, which I'm not super into. But then I found out Beyonce is a Scorpio moon, and it made a lot of sense. Great. I'm glad. Yeah, that that would bring me some comfort. Because I, I think that's she's good. a legend. I'm like, yes, me too. I am a legend. <laughs> I love my Scorpio moon. <laughs> Moving on. Who is ruining the dinner party this week, Melody? Uh, well, how about a lesbian who gets called out for harassing a man and then all of her supporters come running up to lift her up and support her? Yeah. So we're referencing Avital Ranel, who is the sort of celebrity professor at NYU, who has been accused by a gay man of harassment, sexual and otherwise. And uh, that is, you know, that's enough to say, like, that fucking sucks. You know, we we believe victims, etc. But the turn of this is that in her defense, a bunch of sort of also sort of celebrity academics wrote a letter sort of defending her. And the way that they defended her was very much rooted in like just disgusting elitism. And it was very much a letter that said, you know, we can't afford not to have her brilliant work in the world kind of thing, which is very sort of it's just like so academic, like so academia to to act as though this woman, you know, is so important that we can't possibly like hold her accountable for a situation that she was doing some wrong, wrong, wrong things. And so I personally was most disgusted. Well, first by, you know, the harassment and the abuse, of course, but 
the thing that stuck out to me and sort of the the way the news, you know, sort of reported on this was was that letter was really, really upsetting and just like so, so peak academia. And yeah, I mean, I could go on about how I like think I, I have some issues with the iterations, certain iterations of me too. But well, I'll pause there. I what was else do you struck want to say about it? by the New York Times article that you had shared with me a while ago now that also included the letter mm-hmm. that these academics wrote, including some people that we look up to. So it's a bummer that Mm-hmm. If you switched the genders, we would everybody would be outraged. Nobody would be saying this kind of stuff. I think because she is a woman and she's queer, that there was like some exceptions that were supposed to be made. Like it's the queer culture that allows for this kind of stuff. Sure, maybe in some circles, but it just sounded like another white guy trying to get defensive about why he treated a woman like that. And for some reason, that wasn't getting called out because of the gender differentiation. And that really pisses me off because I know it's extra hard for men to come out and say that they have been victims. And I've been trying to be better at giving space for that and understanding that there's a lot of men that are victims. And just if it was reversed the other way, it'd be like a straight, she straight up harassed him. You know, like there's no ifs, ands, or buts, but because of the gender switch up, it got excused, I guess, in in an odd way. And that just makes me upset. Yeah. And like, I'm, I'm in the camp where I actually think that sometimes nuance is important in these kinds of cases. And that's not often very popular with feminists, but you, the nuance shouldn't be at the expense of holding somebody accountable just based on their gender or their celebrity status as an academic. So yeah. Anyway, we got to keep moving. We we could say a lot more would be interested in people's thoughts if they want to share them. All right. So moving on to our main topic of the day, we will be discussing prison abolition. We've talked about prison abolition quite a bit on the show. I identify as an abolitionist. In the last episode, we talked about sort of our Melody and my slightly, slightly different approaches to, to the prison system in general, but largely overlapped. And so we wanted to just sort of dig in to what the abolition movement is all about and uh, how it could even be possible and why I personally feel like it's really important to continue to sort of aggressively articulate and put out there. Before we do that, we want to give a sort of good feminist positionality statement about sort of our investments in this. So longtime listeners know, uh, I mentioned I don't, I'm not, I'm not quiet about the fact that I grew up, I grew up working class. And because, you know, poor folks, obviously poor folks of color in a far more disproportionate way, but poor, poor white folks as well are targeted by the prison and police. And so I, it was not uncommon to see people get arrested in my childhood. Uh, I have a, my best friend's sister has been in and out of jail starting from her late teenage years on. Um, I lost a pen pal to medical neglect in the prison system. He, so he died because he wasn't getting the correct medical treatment. We've talked about our dear friend, Jesus, who we lost to suicide in a jail. And my current pen pal who's in prison is truly fucking miserable the vast majority of the time. And so those are some just personal connections and relationships that I have to people who have been really impacted. Um, I also have a lot of activist friends who have been targeted by prison and police. I've managed to escape that. I've I've never done anything too super illegal in, in actions, but I've definitely been prepped for like what to expect if if I would get get arrested. And I certainly have close friends who who have been targeted and also no activists who have even been targeted by the FBI for supposed sort of, you know, anti-government kind of work. And so 
I have a lot of issues with who's getting locked up and what it does to them. So that's my sort of relationship to it. Mel? Conversely, I grew up in the middle to upper class suburbs of the Midwest. And so I was able to see as a child how many people didn't get arrested. So then when I went to college and started hearing about all these stories, I have a log of lots of experiences um, and things that I witnessed that could put people in jail but didn't. And the only difference was where they Mm -hmm. lived. And so that's like a really useful experience for me because when people say, oh, but they're, but it's the, it's the black people in the ghetto that are the criminals. It's like, no, my neighbors do the same mm-hmm. thing. Like they do the same thing. They, the police don't come around. Right. We our our neighborhoods were not policed the same way that neighborhoods are where I live today. Obviously, Jesus, and it's worth noting because we're going to talk about drugs later, that Jesus was taken into custody because he had hash oil on him. And so it was a marijuana-related charge. Mm -hmm. So fuck that. Mm -hmm. I've learned a lot from talking to Rachel, a lot, a lot, a lot about prison abolition. So that's definitely changing my positionality a lot. Um, When I read The New Jim Crow, I wanted to give a shout out to that book. Mm -hmm. I know it's a little bit old, but it really did open up my eyes to some of the legalities about how black and brown people can be the most incarcerated populations. I'm also from Milwaukee, and we have the highest rate of African American men in jail Mm -hmm. in the entire country. Wow. So, yeah. 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 So I have that that I've, you know, lived with for a long time. And then in ter- we're going to talk about the war on drugs in a second. And I just wanted to share this positionality that I have in that I travel a lot and I go to multiple states that have weed available for sale that is legal for recreational use. And I had to search out a Black-owned weed mm. shop in Portland. Okay, they're all white. They're all gentrify gentrify That's We need to like think about that for real, especially if you don't live in a country or a state that has legal weed. They're all owned by white people, the vast majority. Yeah, that's some of the most. So just think about that when we start talking about. Yeah. When we start talking about the war on drugs. Think about that. Really important point. All right. So sort of a brief, brief history real quick of sort of abolition as as a movement. So the desire to abolish prisons has certainly been around since prisons first existed. There's an Emma Goldman speech that mentions it. Obviously, fast forwarding in time, we certainly obviously see the Black Panther Party deeply critiquing uh, prison and police. And But as a formal sort of movement, it started gaining ground in the 1980s uh, following the war on drugs. Mel, do you want to sort of explain the war on drugs? Our government decided they needed to crack down on drug use. There's a documentary called The Black Power Mixtape, and I'm bringing this up because at the end, they talk about kind of the unraveling of the civil rights movement, and some of that included crack cocaine moving into the inner cities. And there is a theory that the government was part of that transformation. But besides that, it is important to know that inner cities were kind of overrun with drugs. And then the government's like, we need to crack down on this. And so they started targeting those spaces and places and people and putting them in jail. And so they just started changing laws that made possessing drugs, selling drugs, a very like high crime. So that was like, it's kind of like how for a long time in the United States, we're like, we must stop terrorism. And so anybody who mentions bombs will be put in jail. Well, the same thing happened with drugs. So, you know, drug penalties were extremely high, but because they were over policing the inner cities, a bunch of black and brown people were incarcerated to stop the war on drugs. And of course, you can't stop a war on drugs if your country is part of the war. And so it was just a way 
to incarcerate a bunch of people that they didn't want around in their country. To be, I'm I'm talking with a lot of cynicism, but that's kind of if you if I need to talk about it fairly quickly, like that is really the underlying theory of the war on drugs. And if to get sort of a more detailed version of this as well, uh, in addition to Black Power Mixtape, you, people might want to check out 13th, which is a documentary that probably a lot of oh, yes. a lot of our listeners have seen. But it sort of argues, along with the new Jim Crow, that, you know, contemporary uh, incarceration of predominantly black and brown men is sort of an expansion um, or a continuation, rather, of uh, of slavery. Right. So, yeah. So that's that's what the sort of context of this is. So the prison abolition movement as a movement finally started to sort of come out and speak out loud and say, hey, this whole prison thing is actually just locking up people for for drugs in a way that actually there's there's none of this is solving any problems. And in fact, you're just completely destroying predominantly black and brown neighborhoods by taking largely men out of the communities, but women, of course, too, and other genders, which is, you know, completely destroying and keeping us impoverished, keeping us traumatized, and so on and so on. So as a movement, that's sort of that's sort of its roots. And one of the sort of, in addition to that, what it was starting to articulate was this notion that if we're thinking about solving problems, we need to look at the root causes. And the root causes aren't black men selling marijuana. The root causes are things like racism and poverty. So white supremacy and capitalism that create conditions that impoverished neighborhoods turn to survival economy and quote unquote, you know, criminal activity in order to survive. Want to say anything else about that? So then the end result then of what you all said is that the majority of people in the United States that are locked up are people of color. And then they're also disproportionately based on population queer, disabled and largely mentally ill. And then on top of that, we have a growing population in prison of immigrants because of um, the last few presidents that we've had in this country um, that have cracked down on, quote unquote, illegal immigration. Immigrants are a growing population. And just as a like a fact check on that in Ramsey County, John Choi, who was involved in the uh, Flando Castile. So Flando Castile died in Falcon Heights. The guy that was um, part of that case at in Ramsey County, he wants to hire an immigration lawyer because of all the prosecutions of immigrants. So like it's getting so bad that Im- immigrants are getting put into jail that they're like going to get an immigration lawyer to deal with this to like kind of figure out like what's going on with all of the cases that are coming up in front of them. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I mean, I'm assuming that y'all are going to believe us, but I think I'm like overly fact checking things because this is kind of a controversial topic as we get into like getting rid of prisons. Totally. And so it's like very important that we're not just spouting rhetoric like this is like actually happening on the ground. Right. These issues. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So to shift into more data, this I think another important point that the prison abolition movement sort of highlights is when we say like minor, I think, I mean, even on our last episode, Mel, you were like, well, the minor drug offenses, that's okay, but it's the other stuff. And so what I Mm -hmm. think is really, really important that the abolition movement stresses is that the other stuff, like the violent bad stuff, one Mm -hmm. is makes up for such a teeny, 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 tiny portion, way less than the news would like to suggest because we... We see the anytime there is like a violent murder, we're going to see that. But that actually is like 
I'll give you this, the data and the stats in one second, like such a tiny minority. And two, if we think about violent crime, it's so incredibly nuanced because, for example, there's a whole movement that Marion Kaba started called Survived and Punished, which uh, is trying to, to free women women who are thrown in jail for protecting themselves against abusers and assaulters. And that's a that's a huge number of violent crimes is people who are acting in self-defense. Right. So so we have to we have to nuance and we have to dig deeper. So I do want to give you these these stats from the Bureau of Prison. So this is from this is a government document from from August 2018. So what we have is that drug offenses make up 46.1%. So that's almost half. But when you see these other sort of teeny tiny categories, you know, it it might as it kind of might as well be half a full half. No, I see because homicide and aggravated assault and kidnapping. So the ones where I'm like, no, those people are going to jail. I don't you know, like I, those were the people that I was like, they need to stay in jail. Yep. To your point, three point three percent. Three point three percent. Exactly. And again, so aggravated assault includes those domestic violence disputes where we don't sure. know who's the perpetrator and who's the victim. You know, I mean, that that is such a nuanced topic. And I we're going to, we'll give major content notes for this. Obviously, sometimes it's very clear who's the perpetrator and who's the victim. But in many disputes, many reasons that women are in prison is because they get locked up in in acts of sort of self-defense, right? And that can happen with people of any gender. You know, in things like kidnapping offenses, that can also include like custody battles where, you know, a parent takes a kid and there's there's just so, so many, so many different examples. So like this, the serial killers or the like, you know, the sort of sociopathic criminal that were sort of taught via the news and sort of fantastical criminal shows, crime shows are like, a minuscule, minuscule, minuscule portion. Uh, some other, we won't go through the whole thing. We'll make sure we post it in the newsletter and um, maybe we can even post it. We'll post it on our social media and stuff. Immigration is right now at 6.7% and that's continuing to grow. So that keeps growing every every time they do they do this the stat. Robbery, 3.7%. Sex offenses is 9.6%. So again, that's another one that in some cases, there's like clear perpetrator, clear victim. But in other cases, that's another area where sometimes women are thrown in prison in you know, in not in the case of what we we're talking about before with Avital Ronell, but you know, these things can get really murky. And I've done court watch where I see where I sit in courtrooms and I see the way that these sentencing things are handled and it's like disgusting. Like the ways that they, they validate throwing people in jail for, for particular things and what they decide to call it and et cetera. So can I ask a clarifying question? Yep. For sex offenses, does that include sex work? That I'm sure that it does. I'm sure okay. I'm sure that it does. So that's a great point. For both the Johns and the sex workers. Right, exactly, okay. exactly. We can fact check that, but I'm almost positive that that does, especially because I'm looking at the other things on the list and I don't I don't know where else it would fall, you know, unless it's miscellaneous, which is 0.7%. So we'll fact check. Yep. It. One of the other biggest categories. So we have the biggest, ca- the biggest percentage is 46.1%. The next biggest category is 17.8%. So that's a huge leap from drugs to weapons, explosives, and arson. And so that was interesting to me because other than arson, weapons and explosives, I'm not trying, you know, I know a lot of people have different opinions on guns and all the things. I'm not, I'm not trying to make a case for anything other than to say that having weapons and explosives don't necessarily mean you're doing harm to anybody at all. So right, it's our right to have right. have those yeah. things. Our stupid Second right. Amendment, but right. whatever. Right. I mean, we have the right to bear arms and have explosives. Right. So so anyway, so 
we'll we'll share those stats, but I just think a big part of prison abolition work is to say, hey, like we're being society is is telling us a story that is pretty dramatically different from what's actually happening on on the inside. And I do actually think we've we've done a lot of discussion and written about Orange is the New Black, and I think they do a decent job of of demonstrating that. Like I think most of the the prisoners we see in that show, their stories are giving this sort of nuanced, complex explanation of why they're there. And I think in most cases, we would understand that we don't think they should be there. So yeah, so that's so that's another important point as well. Anything else you want to say about that? No, but um, as a form of transition, though, I noted that uh, category A is banking and insurance counterfeit Mm. and embezzlement. And that reminds me of a conversation we started last week about who's not in jail. And so this isn't an argument about how we need to flip who's in jail, but can you take a little bit more time and and explain the concept of like who's... Well, who's totally. not in Think, prison, yeah, thanks. you know, how is that connected to Right, abolition? thanks for bringing that up. I, I forgot to mention that. So yeah, banking and insurance, counterfeit and embezzlement, those would be considered white collar crimes generally. As I was looking at that category, I also thought though that that also includes really poor people who like bounce checks, for example, um, which I definitely, wit- definitely oh. witnessed in my childhood. But so literally. Yeah. Oh yeah, my mom, <laughs> the queen of that. Oh, you can go to jail for that. Oh, that's weird. My mom never did and she lives there in the go. suburb. Okay, so, moving on. Um, okay. So that's interesting to me. So not only is this quote unquote white collar crime category probably a little bit not only exclusively white collar, but it's also only 0.3%. So we could probably literally count on one hand how many like quote unquote white collar people or white collar crimes have actually been prosecuted. Um, And that would be like our Martha Stewart's and our what, what was it like two of the gazillion people who were involved in the the housing crash ended up getting getting imprisoned. So it it almost never happens. And so if we're thinking about, again, this is another sort of changing the discourse of and the consciousness around what harm is, and who's who we're being protected from by by having people in prison. For me, the greatest harm that I've ever known in my life is, po- is poverty, right? And and it's the it's the most painful thing that I've had to experience in my life. And now, that I witness in my mom's life. And the people that cause my mom's poverty are the capitalists, right? And the capitalists are never going to be in prison. And I would I would imagine that, you know, there might be people of color who would say like, you know, white supremacy has been the greatest harm in my life, not somebody selling drugs on the street. And so this is going back to looking at the root ca- causes, who's causing us harm, who's being imprisoned for harm. And to me, I don't feel any safer looking at this list of people who are in prison, knowing that the people who actually cause me harm are in their vacation house, taking a yacht to, you know, another vacation and just, you know, living it up on the backs of um, the exploitation of the vast majority of us who live in this country. So snaps to that. Yeah. So Thank you for reminding me to talk about that. So I, I couldn't, we couldn't talk about prison abolition without mentioning critical resistance, which was sort of the first organization that took this on as part of the movement. And it was founded by Ruthie Gilmore, Angela Davis, and Rose Braz. Um, they coined the term prison industrial complex. So that was a pretty hot term and is still you know, consent, continued to use today to sort of note the way that this is an expansive industry and, uh, you know, 
all connected to the sort of economics. So not only do private prisons gain money, which is a very clear, you know, under we can see that very clearly. Private prisons get money. The more prisoners they have, the more money they get. But even in public prisons, they benefit economically by getting uh, free or near, you know, nearly free labor. You know, school school furniture is made by them. License plate, military equipment are all often made in prison. In California, the, the wildfires were being put out by prisoners. Um, in Boston, snow removal was was being done by prisoners. So there's a lot of very, very basically almost, you know, basically slave slave labor happening that, that people get to benefit from, capitalists get to benefit from. So they were making those economic connections and they were continually trying to hammer home the point. Angela Davis, of course, wrote Our Prisons Obsolete and her whole argument in that is that we are expected to believe that prisons will solve social problems, but actually they exacerbate them and prisons sort of um, distract us from looking at the actual social problems that create conditions for what we deem, you know, criminal and harmful and violent behavior. Hi, Killjoys. It's Rachel here popping in with a reminder on some places you can find us on the interweb and how you can support us. So you can always subscribe to us on your favorite podcast application. And of course, you get extra FKJ points if you leave us a review on iTunes. It is a wonderful way to spread the word and gain new followers. And we really appreciate it. On the social media tip, we you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can like our Facebook page, and you can also join our closed community page, Feminist Killjoys Community-WTFPower. We have a Spotify mixtape that you can search out, Feminist Killjoys PhD mixtape. And if you want to support us financially and you have some extra dollars, you could donate to our Patreon or as a one-time thing on our website, just click on the birdie to make a one-time PayPal donation. Patreon donors also get access to the Killjoy Review newsletter. And of course, you can always email us at fkj.phd at gmail.com. And finally, you can leave us a voicemail at 414-858-7818. Again, 414-858-7818. Back to the show. Can I ask, I'm because I have a feeling that listeners are going to be like, what with this with the slave labor Mm -hmm. situation how because i know we shared we also shared an image on instagram in our story of all the different companies that benefit from prison labor including victoria's Mm -hmm. secret with the cotton picking down in, Mm -hmm. in the south how first off how can you figure out if you're if you're supporting a company that uses prison labor and two like how is the stuff exposed so like how do you know that prisoners are shoveling the snow or putting out the wildfires is it the result of journalists doing their job or I'm, how do you find that I mean, stuff out for the, those two examples the wildfires and the and the snow it was journalists yeah shout out um my fr- i have two friends at the boston globe and i know the boston globe reported on that shout out patrick and christella Chris, oh cool um so yeah certainly journalists and then also of course social movements so the the prison strike which if we had more time we would have sort of tied this to the prison strike and hopefully we're going to have a follow up episode on the most recent um august 21st prison strike that actually just ended on yesterday actually um but you know, there's so much so much grassroots organizing happening within prison with by by inmates who are connected to folks on the outside. So, for example, an organization like Black and Pink, which I'm involved in, you know, the, the pen pal move, basically like the pen pal movement of writing to incarcerated people has enabled sort of organizing that take, you know, 
to, to have a bridge between organizing on the inside and the outside. And so we get to hear stories and that, and I don't mean to create a separation of like activists and people who go to jail. There's also activists whose, you know, husbands are in jail, whose sons are in jail, whose girlfriends are in jail. Like mm-hmm. there's, you know, there's people get stories because we're connected to, we're connected to it, you know, by, by our, our friends, our family, and also good journalists and also, you know, good activists and organizing work that that reports on this. So, you know, I would follow I would start following if, if you want to, like, get information right away. I would follow on if you if you're on Twitter or on Facebook, really, Marion Kaba, Miriam Kaba and Kelly Hayes are two incredible sources of wealth of information. They have their feet on the ground. They know what's happening um, and they're deeply dedicated abolitionists, um, also really just sort of funny and blunt and don't pull any punches. So Kelly Hayes, Miriam Kaba, Mass Bail Fund. I Any bail fund is a great organization to follow. Shout out to Atara, who is the founder of Mass Bail Fund. I adore her. She has really amazing posts on the Mass Bail Fund website that talks about just like egregious shit that's happening from the, you know, we see it firsthand. And then Critical Resistance is not super active right now, but definitely go on their website. They have a huge, huge resource. We can save some of this for the end too, but just to answer your question in in real time, like follow the right people and groups and that information will come. Okay. So let's jump ahead to why abolition and not reform. So I think the short answer for me is that because in a capitalist racist state, no one will ever actually put the actual bad guy, quote unquote, bad guys in prison. And even though my deepest transformative justice witchy healing bones believe that even the most egregious capitalists could maybe be transformed. I have little less faith in that than most poor folks who are just being who are just enduring trauma of living in this system. And, you know, I, mm-hmm. I have a lot more faith mm-hmm. that they can be transformed. So so, yeah, I, I just we we can't keep relying on a system that further traumatizes people and that doesn't actually fix any problems. So that's why abolition and not reform, because it's not going to get better if if it's a, a, you know, a happier, shinier system where we still rely on this assumption of what is bad and harmful and what is good and not harmful when we actually live in a society that works really hard to mislead us about what is actually harmful and not harmful. And oftentimes reforms give the state more power and more money, which continues to suggest that we need to focus attention on prison as a solution to problems rather than focusing on the roots of the problem, which is, you know, challenging our economic system, continuing to fight white supremacy and toxic masculinity. So it it often it serves as this distraction. So the, the more that we talk about abolition, the more that we can say we're abolitionists, because if we want to actually reduce harm, if we want less, if we want to end having a rape culture, if we want to end you know, addiction and all of these things, we need to look at the roots of the problem and not the prison. Third thing that I'll say before I pause is that one of its sort of taglines of uh, sort of the abolition movement largely is imagine a world without prisons. And this evocative rhetoric is really intentional. And this is when I get a little bit woo-woo and why I love the abolition movement, because I don't think that everybody who participates in it, like, like it is woo woo, but it's really about like manifesting this world by saying out loud. We could also think of this in in anarchist movements. There's something called um, prefigurative uh, politics or, or prefigurative world making, where you sort of create the world you want inside the shell. You know, create the new world inside the shell of the old, even while the old is still all around us being fucking terrible. And it basically names and puts into place this thing that you want because the only way that we're going to get that is 
to state out loud that it's possible. Rose Braz, who's the co-founder of Critical Resistance, um, said a prerequisite to seeking any social change is the naming of it. So we have to say this shit out loud. We have to say, I, I believe that a world without rape is possible. I believe that a world without prisons is possible. I believe that a world without, um, you know, addiction is is possible and so on and so on. So, yeah, I'm going to pause there. Mel, you want to jump in? So for listeners who are like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then Rachel says, a world without prisons? Like, ooh, I don't know about that. I read an article. I didn't realize it was three years old. But three years ago, I read this article in the New York Times Magazine, and it's called The Radical Humanness of Norway's Halden Prison. And I know Rachel just said, imagine a world without prisons. But when I read this article about the Norway prison, it helped me imagine a world without prisons because our understanding of a prison in the United States is so specific. And so I just want to just quote this article very briefly, and then we'll link it in all of our linkable places. Quote, there were no coils of razor wire in sight, no no lethal electric fences, no towers manned by snipers, nothing violent, threatening, or dangerous. And yet no prisoner has ever tried to escape. Every aspect of the facility was designed to ease psychological pressures, mitigate conflict, and minimize interpersonal friction. Hence the blueberry forest. Mm -hmm. So they lived among a forest. And I think the point here is not, this is not, I'm not bringing this up as a reformist move, but as a reminder that prisons themselves are so violent. Mm -hmm. And when you live in a situation like that, there is no chance that you can reform yourself Mm -hmm. to begin with. And so this article helped me imagine a world in which people that committed a crime didn't go to a violent place like prison, but went to more of like a rehab place, you know, where you're in a forest and you're talking about your feelings constantly, you're interacting with other people in a mutually respectful way. When you set up a space that respects you, you get a lot more out of the people Mm -hmm. that are there, you know, but we're putting people in violent that are already dealing with violence in their world bringing them to a place in which they're treated like Mm -hmm. animals. And then we wonder why nothing changes. And so when you try to imagine a world without prisons, this article helps by showing you how we could put people in in places that like make them feel really good. And you might think they don't deserve that. But if the end goal is to make our world safer and make us all, you know, humane and work well together, then like what we have right now isn't totally. working. So we have to see something totally. else. Um, exactly. So that article really changed my my viewpoint on, on prisons back yeah, then. Yeah, so. thanks. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, so some other sort of like, well, what about this? What about this questions? Um, I, I get a lot mm-hmm. of this from Critical Resistance. They have a toolkit where they specifically have like, what if somebody asks you this? What if somebody asks me this? How do I respond? How do I respond? So I'm, I'm borrowing a lot of this theory from, from them. That's It's what I've learned from largely. So in terms of the sort of like, so are we just supposed to open the door prison doors right away and just like let people out and just like that just like literally tomorrow open the prison doors? Some abolitionists would say yes, that is better. I I feel like I'm a little bit on the fence, but something that the that the movement really really wants to stress is that abolition is not only about prison because it's also about the root causes of harm, which means transforming the society that exists outside of the prison. And so if we don't have the sort of structural right. conditions to support people outside of prison, then, uh, you know, that's that's not exactly like the abolitionist dream. Like the dream isn't burn down all the open the prison doors, burn down all the prisons, because that's not the end of that's not the end of the dream. The dream is that there's, you know, supportive healing 
economically just, you know, communities that that people can return to. So that's that's, you know, that's one one note. You'll get some different opinions from from folks about like, no, actually, it will be better if we just open the prison doors tomorrow. And that goes back to the sort of like, who are we really being protected from uh, of the people who are in prison? Um, And so you can sort of have your own opinion about that. But regardless, the sort of bigger answer to that question is like, it's not just about opening the prison doors, it's about fixing the society outside of the prison doors as well. So in terms of what about sexual abusers and offenders, I know this is a super hot button issue. So I totally understand if people want to turn literally turn this podcast off right now, because you're going to hear an argument for compassion towards offenders. So pause, turn it off if you want. My answer to this as it has been for a long time is that Number one, abusers are sometimes victims themselves. So if we're actually trying to protect victims, what does it mean when we say, well, if you're a victim, but then you abuse somebody or harm somebody, then you're dead to us completely. That will get murky because it's very easy for people who have been abused to perpetuate that harm. It's um, it's it's sort of a natural response to trauma or one, one response to trauma that, that happens in people. And so healing for the abuser is often healing for the victim as well, right? And this goes back again to Melody said, well, they don't deserve it. But if we actually want to reduce harm in general, if we actually want people to not be physically or sexually assaulted ever again, we actually have to focus on healing instead of punishment because punishment isn't fucking working. So that's the note on that. But of course, huge, huge, huge important note of this If harm is caused, there is a need for a safe place for both the abuser and the victim. None of this is trying to suggest that an abuser should like go back to the apartment of the person that they harmed and like the victim should just like suck it up and deal with it and be nice to them. Accountability never has to look like a victim engaging with their abuser ever again. So that's that's an important note. It's not trying to say that the victim has to like be part of the healing process for the abuser. That's why we need to have community accountability processes in in play where um, the community can sort of step in and um, and help protect the the victim from having to sort of be in the same space as the abuser, but also give compassion and healing resources to to the 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 abuser who may or may not also be a victim. This other point, what about being safe? This is an opportunity, uh, critical resistance suggests doing an exercise of listing what makes us feel safe. So literally pause the podcast, take out a piece of paper, list like what makes you feel safe, and then see if it goes, go back to the table we read from the Bureau of Prisons and see if what makes you feel safe, you know, is being matched by who's in prison. For me, it's economic stability. And as I discussed before, the capitalists aren't in jail. So Prisons aren't aren't helping me feel safe, particularly. You mentioned about the victim and victim's family getting being involved in the reconciliation process. Um, it reminds me also of how complicated the prison system is when the victim or the victim's family asks that the person not be put in mm-hmm. prison. Um, and so you can already see inklings of that happening in our society, that oftentimes the people that have been the victims, not always, but sometimes, do not want prison as the solution. Um, and so that becomes that, cr- there you go, that's the situation then. It's like, what do you do? And always the prison system wins out. You know, mm-hmm. the judge hears them. But, you know, it's all, the answer is always prison. Yeah, and I guess for me, and I think this is where... What makes, you know, what makes me feel safe or what makes me feel unsafe is really dealing with men 
by myself at night. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what scares me the most. But I also understand, given this framework, that they grew up in a patriarchy and nobody is training men, like, can you get your shit together? Mm -hmm. Like, to not... To the point where, like, it's so sad that black men often have to own this and, like, there's been multiple stories. This is a very common anecdote that black men will actually alter their behavior Mm -hmm. to not scare white women, which is bullshit. Because I'm scared of the white drunks by by frats you Mm -hmm. know like those are the scary people to me but putting them in jail isn't going to make any of that better you know Mm -hmm. but getting our whole society trained in on why (laughs) rape culture is not okay and getting the drinking culture under control like that would make me feel Mm -hmm. safer not these people being in jail but right now because we don't have we don't have the former thing that i mentioned like the easiest thing is like put them in jail then because i don't want them raping anybody else so at least they're out of here um, but if we had a society that actually would work with these men and, and talk to them about why this behavior is not okay, then I'd happily choose that option. Yeah. And I mean, but it goes, so it's what, literally like lock up every white guy who joins a frat. And it's like, in a rape culture, we're literally all poss- capable of yeah. causing harm, right? I mean, yeah. so do we just all go to prison? So that in case we accidentally harm, I mean, yeah. So, but I... I appreciate that you were able to like say like, well, the root cause here is the patriarchy because that's that's like that's the abolition move. So, yes, yeah. And then the the other like, if if I may, can I take yeah, the please, last? Please. What about so? What about calling the cops? You know, what if you need to call the cops? And I'm like really really into the idea of having somebody to call besides the cops. I've brought this up on the show multiple times. So why don't we have trained unarmed mental health responders to call because think of the time well i'll speak from experience the times that i've wanted to call the cops i see a drunk guy walking down the street and i'm worried for his safety um there's a mentally unstable person harassing the kids in my neighborhood somebody is passed out at the bus stop from drinking too much i hear domestic fighting it's all about their safety Mm -hmm. not about wanting anybody to go Mm -hmm. to jail but i know if i call the cops there's a high likelihood that there somebody is going to be arrested in that situation. And so the problem is that we don't have anybody else to call. So maybe in your I would hope I would hope that somebody is listening. They're like, in our city we do, because I know in Portland there there is a number that you can call. But Portland is like hippy dippy. They do innovative stuff with this kind of material. And so I'm not surprised about mm-hmm. that, Portland, Oregon. But if I call the health department or if I call the EMT and be like, hey, can you check on this guy? I just like don't think he's I think he's passed out. I'm worried that he's overdosing. They'll send the police. There's not even an option to send the EMT. And so I feel like that is such that is very close. I feel like we can do that, especially on the heels of Black Lives Matter. Like that is very possible that we can rally our cities around that um, because it's really effed up that we don't have that as an option. Because now that people are learning, you don't call the cops, which is great, but people still want to help and there's nobody to call. Right. Yeah. And so that's that's another thing about the sort of like extreme rhetoric of the abolition movement is like, yeah, don't call the cops. That's a huge thing to ask. But it also means that if we have enough people saying that, then our, you know, our cities, our local governments will be forced to say, okay, well, I guess we're going to have to look at redistributing resources to unarmed mental health responders, you know? So that's, yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure that you know, I know for a fact that like Black Lives Matter chapters have done work around this. So, you know, if you're interested in trying to tap into that kind of work, like see what's already happening, um, you know, likely by black and brown led organizations. 
Yeah, so I think that's kind of a nice, hopeful note to end on. Like, here's a small, tangible thing that we could do sort of in the service of this. It's a it's a big, scary topic. It's been, you know, it's caused some friction in, in my life, I think, uh, in my feminist communities, particularly around Me Too. So it's not an easy stance to have. But I personally think it's a really important one. I feel really, I feel really compelled to to put put my work and effort into it. But, but um, I'm glad we dug a little bit deeper. Any other last words from you, Mel? No. Do you feel like you are? This was not trying to persuade you. Like I support you, whatever. But <laughs> I'm curious if, because last week you were like, I don't know, maybe I, or two weeks ago you were like, maybe I am an abolitionist. I don't know. So I don't know. Do you feel? How are you feeling after doing the research on on this episode? I'm a little bit further along, I think, a, a really important point or a, a moment that is very persuasive for me is thinking about how people's behavior is rooted in the systems. And I get that with the drug use and the violence, right? And other people are like, they would disagree with me. They're like, no, they're just violent people. You yeah. know what I mean? They just join gangs. To jo- and so I have a lot of compassion for that, but I have zero, yeah. compa- you know, using my same framework, though, then I should have compassion for people who are sex, sex offenders because... They're growing up in the same system that teaches them horrible things right. about women. I think the difference is that I'm I'm likely to be a victim of one mm-hmm. of those things and not the other. And so it's coming from a personal mm-hmm, perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm I'm further al- along there, but that will yeah. remain a sticking point for me. But at the same time, if I had to choose, like I'd rather have a bunch of the Wall Street right. assholes and the people that destroyed our housing market and and took advantage of poor people like they should be in jail not the people who you know had to foreclose their home and go through all this bankruptcy stuff like yeah so okay just just curious i'm I'm there yeah yeah no no pressure i've shifted a little on the spectrum of things cool just curious All right, uh, let's do a quick rapid fire RWL because we we have a long episode with us. So what are you reading, watching, and listening to? I'm reading somewhat this book called Beyond ADHD, but I think I'm going to stop reading it because it was clearly written by a guy because he was very, he just talked about how many Twitter followers he had. And he's just like, oh God. what if I don't have ADHD? Is my whole personification online a lie then what am i gonna do with oh my all my God. twitter followers oh and i'm gosh. like i think i'm gonna just like skip the intro and like maybe get to the yeah. more like medically stuff but i was it right. just reminded me of like how low to- how much i have zero tolerance for that kind of arrogant writing from people of any gender let me just say i'm just yeah. not really into arrogant writing and that's why i have a problem with theorists sometimes it's like who yeah. are you to say that gender is undoing itself judith i'm just kidding (laughs) (laughs) but you know what i mean it's that like authoritative talk you know so anyway so that's that book um i am watching clips of serena talk to the yell at the umpire um at the u.s open i find that whole situation excellent rageful and fascinating and then i'm listening Mm -hmm. to a very specific song 2009 by mac miller he just passed away so rest in peace i know that's very hard for a lot of people yeah. But I do really enjoy that song. It's very beautiful. So if you're like not familiar with Mac Miller, I would uh, suggest that song to listen to. What are you yeah. RWLing? Um, I'm reading. I want to give out a shout out to my friend Edie, who is a listener and friend who we just started connecting 
again via social media. And then finally, we had a lovely phone chat. And we're both writers. And so I'm reading some of their writing uh, that they sent and really enjoying it. It's beautiful and heavy. And so it was fun to have a little like creative writing exchange um, with with an old friend who's back to being a, a current friend. So that was fun. Watching to to All the Boys I Loved, which is a Netflix movie. It was getting some some press to All the Boys I Loved. It's sort of a teen, a teen romantic comedy, dramedy, but it stars, well, it centers a, a Korean-American family. And it was really sweet. It was a really sweet, cute little movie. Like, it's not perfect, but um, it was really, it was just a fun thing to watch and just sort of get a sense of, like like we talked about last week with pop culture, you know, sort of in terms of representation, which is not always revolutionary at all, but it like, it meant that, you know, actors of color got paid to do a job and uh, we got to see a family that was admittedly, I'm so tired of, I'm sorry, this is just a side note. All these fucking teen comedies, everybody's filthy fucking rich. And so I was a little annoyed at the house because it was fucking huge. But anyway, that's a side note. But it was, you know, it was diverse cast, et cetera. So it was, it was sweet. And then I went to um, the Nico Case concert last week. And it was, she's just incredible. And Thou from Thou and the Get Down, Stay Down was also the opener, who I like very much and was very charming. Made some jokes about corn, not the band, but eating corn at the fair. And it was great. So that's that. I love that in our world, you have to make that. Pretty soon, <laughs> we won't know. have to make that uh, disclaimer anymore. Right. Just... Enough of us grew up oh my God. with with corn. Gotta love corn. I love, uh, man, I love that band. I, well, I'm just kidding. This is No, but here's the thing. I don't know how much we've talked about this, but like when you're in like rural Ohio and your only outlet for like angst and alternative music comes from like the alternative radio station that plays corn you kind of like corn so i definitely went through a corn stage yeah anyway okay um fkj (laughs) 